Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 43. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 43. Would you please stand as we read God's word? Hear now the word of the Lord. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good to be here. Would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray? Lord God, we ask you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you and you alone, that you would mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word and give give us the grace to receive it with true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust in you, to serve and honor you as we ought, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living, edify our neighbors with good examples, rendering to you the love and obedience as faithful servants owe their masters, children, their parents, since it has pleased you to receive us among the number of your servants and children. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, amen. If you follow the news, um, I don't think I've heard anything recently, but 
when you hear the name of the president of the Philippines, people um, usually fear. If you don't agree with what he says, you might disappear the next day. He gets things done, whether you agree or not. What he says happens, often by force. There's a huge contrast to the, the leadership of the Philippines and the slow, gradual ministry of Pastor Rick, Olive Grove, and the church. Um, I think I have a picture here. This was taken the last day. Um, that's Jameson that David mentioned and his older sister, um, Giselle. Um, beautiful brother and sister, love the Lord. Um, whenever I meet them, I'm just humbled and encouraged by them. You can take that picture down. Um, Jameson and Giselle, they, I was trying to confirm how long they've been part of the ministry um, but minimum seven years of going through the G127, short for Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, highlighting that humanity, that these young children are made in the image of God and infused with that and the gospel. Um, so both Jameson and Giselle have gone through at least seven, maybe ten years of being tutored. This is an after-school tutoring program that these two have been going for a long time, slow, week after week, people like Pastor Rick and other people going there, loving them, teaching them, tutoring them, inviting them to church. And they've been coming, um, going to Olive Grove for at least five years, Giselle and Jameson serving as youth leaders um, in an amazing way. So I see this contrast between people who have a lot of power, like the president, who um, gets things done his way, fast, quickly. People respond. And there is safety now. People like the president because they can go outside at night or even during the day without fearing for their lives. But there's a huge contrast to what the ministry of Olive Grove, the way they've been, Pastor Ephraim, like discipling these young men, young women, um, his wife, Noeli, who's been discipling these young women like Giselle after having gone through the G127. And it challenges me to think, as I think about power, change, and results, especially as I'm learning and growing as a parent of my own, as, as you know, seeing my kids wanting to see change, wanting to control, wanting to use power for that result that I can see, and learning again that that's not how God operated. We come to today's passage. Pastor Eugene preached last week a parable of the soil or the sower. Um, in the context of all these disciples thinking about how the kingdom of God would come, they expected this kind of uh, full, glorious consummation where Jesus, the Messiah that they've been waiting for, will come with power, 
get things done, eradicate all things that doesn't belong to the kingdom. But Jesus, in last sermon that Pastor Eugene preached, in going through the parable of the sower, the, the, the soil, the four types, we see three out of four do not really believe. And not everyone's genuine, not everyone bears fruit. Not everyone's response will be positive. During the Philippines training, we read through um, and shared through the book of Acts. And in the very beginning of the chapter, I was really challenged by this. Um, this is disciples talking to Jesus after the resurrection, before he ascended, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Meaning, God, are you going to blast away the unbelievers now? Like, you're going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to show judgment now and show your way? And he's like, that's not for you to know. You are to be my disciple, be my witnesses now. Get things straight. Focus on what you need to do. You see, people throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, and even now, when we think of power, when we think of Jesus, the Messiah, we expect power upon glory, horses, triumph, wonder, and all that. We're looking for this kingdom of glory, kingdom of majesty, kingdom of worldwide wonder. And then he goes to say and teach the parable of the first type of soil, the four kinds of soils, and how kingdom is not readily received, but in fact rejected, and there are hard soils, the rocky soils, thorny soils that are not receptive to the word, and the majority of the world is rejecting. The kingdom of God is not going to happen the way you expect, disciples, is what he's saying. And now having heard that, what might they be thinking? So what are you going to do with this? Three quarters of the people who are not going to be receptive to the good news. What are you going to do? What's going to happen to them? And here's where we come to the second parable. I know uh, Priscilla read it, but let me read it again, at least verse 24 through 30. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in the bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. If you're a Galilean farmer, as Pastor Eugene preached, you would do your due diligence in plowing your field, cleaning out the weeds, get rid of the weeds, turn over any rocky stuff, and get the field ready to be as receptive as possible. Even if you clean out, you will see some weeds crop up. But the uniqueness of this is that um, this enemy, the evil one, planted these weeds 
among all throughout the field. There was far more weeds than you would normally see or anticipate. I don't know if you guys ever planted anything, um, but you know, after you, you till the ground and you plant your thing, eventually you will see, and I've seen some of that in my garden. Now my garden is actually not a garden, it's like something else. But uh, things like this happened enough that during the Roman Empire, the Roman government established law against this because people try to sabotage you know, the crops. Um, so there were certain kind of punishment for those who would do something like this. So it's known enough, and you know, it brings out the stealth and the secrecy of this awful thing that happens. Um, now, an amazing thing about this wheat is it looks just like the wheat. You can't tell until it grows and it matures, and then it's too late. And here, the servants, so the, the owner is wealthy enough to have servants. The servants ask, hey, should we uproot the weed? But due to the more extensive root system of the weeds, the master knows. It's like, no, let's not. Because if you try to do that, then it's not only going to get rid of the weeds, you're going to also get rid of the wheat. Let's wait till the harvest time. And then at the harvest time, you know, they will bundle up the weeds and burn it because you want to burn up the seeds so that the seeds won't spread again because if you don't, guess what? It's going to come up somewhere else. And then the wheat you will gather into the barn. After telling this parable, Jesus continues with the parable of the mustard seed. Um, Jesus continues by saying, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Lord Kelvin, um, we don't usually talk about his temperature scale, but Lord Kelvin, he was trying to make a point and he was suspending this gigantic steel chunk weighing many, many pounds and made a little kind of a P-shape of paper and just started tossing at this gigantic metal. Obviously, it wouldn't budge, but as he continued to throw this little wad of paper again and again and again and again, eventually, this massive weight began to vacillate back and forth. Small things with profound result is what he was trying to point out. In the first two parables, the, the first parable of the soil and now with the weeds, shows us that there's a conflict within the kingdom. There's a tension. In the parable I just read about the, the, the mustard seed and the next one has to do with the victory the smallness, but eventual victory of the kingdom of God, that there is a profound influence. Kind of like the story of Jameson and Giselle took a long time of slow, gradual display of consistent love, sharing of the gospel, living it out, discipling. You know, we live in a day and age where we want to see conversions happen right away. Say, I want to see salvation, repentance count. How many people place their trust, there is a place for that, perhaps, but Jesus 
saying and teaching that kingdom of God operates in a different way. It's not something that you, it starts big, but it is small, but it has power. So in this parable, you have another farmer who is planting a crop, in this case, crop of mustard. You can use mustard for flavoring or oil or medicinal purpose. And here, um, a typical uh, mustard shrub or a thorn, I mean, bush would grow up to maybe seven to eight feet. That's like an average. But, uh, you know, also frequently, this would also grow to anywhere from 12 to 15 feet. So this is the, the example that Jesus is giving here is a, is a regular thing that happens. Farmers plant, and you would see, you know, um, seed turning into a bush, into this like tree-like size, and it's not an exaggeration, but it's kind of understood as a fact of life. People see this happen. Farmers see this happen. Um, and this is what Jesus is saying. Kingdom of God will start small, but it will grow. It will have power. It will have influence. Um, think of a manger. Can you think of any less majestic entry as a king of kings and how that panned out? Can you think of these 12 disciples of really nobodies who started following Jesus and 120 disciples who followed Jesus as we see in the book of Acts and what happened in history is history. In both these parables of the, the mustard or the leaven that comes after, it's not parable of this kind of apocalyptic boom. See the power of God in a visible way, but this quiet, small beginnings. Something that us Americans are not too fond of. We want, we like supersizing everything, quantifying everything, measuring, counting, seeing things, and feeling good about it. Jesus kind of goes against that kind of mindset that we so readily want, expect, and operate with. Jesus continues with the next parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Our Lord Jesus probably grew up seeing this happen again in a common life. His mother probably um, made bread, you know, uh, make the mix, and then with the batch of dough that she has prepared, whatever yeast or sourdough that she had from the previous batch, she would move and add it into it and make this delicious bread. Um, you would have to leave it for a while till the loaf you know, ferments, bubbles, and permeates and causing it to rise. It tastes far better than any flat, non-leavened bread. Um, and this little bit of leaven is hidden in three measures of meal. Um, three measures of meal is an ephah. And ephah is a lot of flour. It's pretty massive. It's 22 liters or five dry gallons. 
you could literally feed a small village, like maybe 120 people. It's a lot of bread if you bake it. Um, but people were rather generous. Back in one of the fir- first account of making bread comes in Genesis 18 when the Lord comes with angels and um, Sarah and Abraham um, welcomes them with hospitality. Guess how much bread that Sarah made? She made three measures of meal, enough to feed like 120 people for these three guests. Great generosity. But here, it really has to do in showing this positive influence that permeates, that infiltrates when it's placed inside. She hides it, has to be injected, has to be placed in order to permeate. There's got to be contact, and the power of the kingdom of God operates in such a way, though it might be small, when it comes in contact with this massive amount, it works to have this positive, massive influence. Can't help but think this is reflecting the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not an illustration of sin, as many of us might be thinking, because in the Bible, when you think of leavened bread, it's usually something to be shunned. And if you think about, like, let's say, Exodus, when the Israelites are about to leave Egypt, the Lord God says, you know, don't eat any leavened bread. And if you think about it, that's really a symbol of continuation. Because if you were to have leavened bread as they're about to escape for freedom, guess where they're going to get the leaven from? from the previous batches that they've had living in Egypt, in slavery. So the point is to discontinue that kind of a history. So when, when God says, you know what? No leavened bread because we want a new beginning with me as your king delivering you from slavery. But now the emphasis really here as Jesus is speaking is about the point of permeation, the influence. that the kingdom of God operates in such a way. If you were a Jewish mother and you had a daughter that you're giving away in marriage, one of the gifts that a Jewish mother would give to a Jewish girl was a little piece of leaven from the last dough that she would have made bread with before the wedding that she would want her daughter to make the first loaf. That would be symbolizing that kind of continuity of blessedness, goodness. Such small, tiny amount of little leaven, sourdough, that has power to affect five gallons worth of grain. You start with 100 little disciples, 120 little disciples, who banded together in Jerusalem, and you fast forward 2,000 years, what do we have? God has planted his leaven inside the world for this purpose. And Jesus continues in verse 34. Pastor Eugene set me up for this. Thank you very much. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Previously in Matthew 13, verses 14 and 15, uh, Jesus uh, references Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And Isaiah understood his responsibility as a prophet of God to preach God's message, knowing full well that the message that he's going to give will be rejected, that people are not going to hear it. Were there some instances of receptivity? Yes, but for the vast majority, he knew even though he would be faithful, the vast majority of people who would hear it would be responding with unbelief. And Jesus quoted those words and now quotes these words that I just read, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. You see, there's a trajectory of what was spoken in Isaiah 6, um, trajectory pointing to also Jesus' rejection. Just as the Israelites rejected the message with unbelief, it points to what's going to happen in the person of Jesus Christ, that he too will be rejected. In Matthew 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus quotes uh, Psalm 78, verse 2. Psalm 78 is a long historical kind of a psalm. It kind of recaps Israel's history of its sinfulness, God's grace, graciousness, again and again. God is praised for his mercy, and the people of God are condemned uh, for their sinfulness. It's, it's a facts of history, but here Jesus is pointing out, I'm going to teach something new through something old. Fathers have known about it, but they didn't quite get it. Jesus basically says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world here. So the first parable, we, we had the different soils. And as I said earlier, there's a contrast between, let's say, a typical dictator or person of power, the way he or she would wield power and influence, get it his way or her way, get it done, versus this kind of three-quarters of the people not responding and being okay, we're not going to destroy them or annihilate them because we see in second parable that let's wait till the end of the time. question is, are these things, these kind of things also taught in the Old Testament? A first century Jew expected a Messiah, a Davidic Messiah. Jesus claimed to be a Davidic Messiah but although he had power to heal, power to resurrect, he had power to do miracles, he goes to the cross and he suffers. Although he can raise people like Lazarus from dead, he identifies himself as a suffering servant. You see, all these things were taught in the Old Testament, but people didn't quite get it. Old Testament depicted David as not only a conqueror, but also one who would be betrayed by friends as a sovereign king, but also wounded for our transgression. And all of this really gets us prepared well for 
Who else? But Jesus Christ. But you know what? The apostles didn't get it. Peter didn't get it. There was no category of this kind of a suffering king. Scripture spoke of it, but they didn't have it here. When we were going through the book of Acts in the mission team, one of the things that I saw again, that we saw again, was Apostle Paul would go to a synagogue after synagogue when he visits one city to another. And do you know what he did? He pointed out how Jesus was that fulfillment of that kind of suffering servant to these Jews. He, he pointed out Jesus actually is the one, was the one that they've been waiting for. They couldn't make that kind of a connection because although it's in Scripture, and let's be honest, Apostle Paul, his eyes were not open either first. He was the one who was going out, finding people who follow the way, Jesus Christ, arresting them, killing them. It took much time and God's intervention for his eyes to be opened after he lost his sight. Jesus tells parables because in line with Scripture, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. It's not the easiest thing to hear. I grew up hearing that Jesus spoke in parables because it helps people understand. It's like a sermon illustration. But actually, that's far, far from the truth. Jesus spoke in parables not to clarify things to the people, but to confuse and confound After speaking all this, it says in verse 36 that Jesus left the crowd. Remember, he was in a house. He went out of the house, sat in a boat to preach to the masses, probably with his disciples there. Now, after having taught all these parables, one, two, three, four, and reminding them about, sandwiching about the reason why he's preaching in parables, he leaves the crowds. When probably back into the same house, probably um, Apostle um, um, Peter's house, and his disciples now come to him. The crowds are not there. They've heard the parables. They don't get it. Neither do disciples get it. But now disciples ask, explain to us the parables of the weeds of the field. And this is what he says. The one who sows a good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of God, sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sow them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place... There'll be weeping, gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he closes. He who has ears, let him hear. This is without the crowds. Just the disciples. 
He's only showing, revealing his truth to his own. Because the masses are not really there to really know, to learn, to grow, to posture themselves as students. It is the disciples who really want to know and understand. And the Lord explains that it's the, it's the Lord God who is sowing the seed, and it's his field. And the field, what does Jesus say, is the world. God sows his children of his kingdom throughout the world, his kingdom. And it is the evil one, the devil, Satan, who sows the weeds. And the disciples want to know, you know, just as these workers want to know, should they pull out? Um, And it's no. Now, if you think about it, if this were a church, this would be a problem, right? How do you practice church discipline when you have this sort of a problem? Well, Jesus is not talking about a local church. He's talking about the world as he is explicitly describing. It is not a Christian's role or a local church's role to uproot, judge the world. When it comes to our knowledge, it is a local church's role and responsibility to do church discipline within the church. But here we learn that the church has no right to church discipline in, in the way to the world. Expose heretics out there. Now, when we see for what it is, we are to speak the truth, but we're not to judge the world. We're not to isolate ourselves because we are the one planted by God to influence the weeds for in a positive sense. We also need to recognize it is the evil one, the devil, who does the planting. So there's only two types of people. You are either child of the king, and as harsh as it may sound, child of the devil. It's one or the other. And the devil sows the weeds everywhere. And everywhere includes the church. So obviously, as I mentioned, and as we've been teaching, um, when we find them at a church, we are to uh, respond When you look at Jesus and his 12 disciples, you have Judas among the other disciples. And what does Jesus do? He he doesn't just kick him out, actually. He is patient. Um, He calls us to be patient till the end of the age because the, the judgment is what the angels do, not us. Our job is to be, as we are placed in the world, have that kind of positive influence as you would see with the leaven or with the mustard seed. Church's function is not to rip out weeds of the world. This is not the age of judgment. 
as we just um, talked about Judas and how the Lord related and interacted with him. We're not called to be executioners, but be loving and patient and gracious as our Lord was. It is the angels that are called to judgment. And if we consider ourselves Christians, we are called to righteous, positive influence for the kingdom. At the end, though, there are some harsh sayings. It's there. Now, practically, if you are in a horticulture world, you have weeds, you will burn them. You got to burn them to get rid of the bad seed or else it will spread. And just as you would see weeds being burned at a harvest time for the next season, when the end comes, Jesus makes it very clear that the evil ones will be separated and will be thrown into eternal hell where there will be gnashing of teeth. You see this picture of this fiery furnace. Here, you see it again in Revelation 19. You'll see the unquenchable fire in Mark 9. You'll see everlasting fire come up again in Matthew 25. Hell is real. Jesus talks about it the most out of all people in the scriptures. So the question that I want to end with is the question of, am I a wheat or am I a weed? If you consider, if you believe in your heart that you are a wheat, then your call is to have that kind of positive influence in this world for the good of the gospel and for the kingdom. If you pause for a while, though, I think we have to confess that we are all, at one point, weeds who did not believe, who did not trust. Just as Apostle Paul was gravely mistaken, but in sin, as Jesus pointed out, why are you doing this to me, Paul, Saul? We, too, have been patiently waited by the grace of God. I don't know how many of us here in this church consider ourselves as wheat, um, but I think this, this, these verses, these parables really should humble us and challenge us to think about who, I, who we are and where we are at. Devil is real, and the scary thing is they look the same. The counterfeit child or the Christian looks exactly the same as the real thing. You can't tell the difference besides when the fruit is made visible. Let's not be surprised about this, that the devil is on the offense. However, I think the question is to examine what kind of fruit we are bearing by the power of the Holy Spirit. You could look exactly the same 
as a true believer, doing the same thing, but are we bearing the fruit? Am I loving God? Am I loving his word? Am I loving his church? Is there joy in the gospel? Is there joy in knowing who God is and whose we are because of what Christ did on the cross? Is there a peace that is growing because we know what Christ has finished, that the cross has paid for it all? That there is this eternal peace that is growing. We haven't arrived, but that is there, that is growing as a leaven is growing inside that dough. Am I growing in patience as I'm interacting with my fellow brothers and sisters, with my neighbors, with my family, with, with people that God has placed in my life? Is, is a fruit being visible? Is there kindness in the way I speak? Not out of fear of man, but that is rooted in knowing the gospel. Is there goodness, generosity in the way I relate with what God has entrusted in my time, in my treasure, in my talent, or am I hoarding it? Am I serving? Is there joy in serving what God has entrusted, or am I always holding tightly? Do I see faithfulness growing because I am forever convicted and compelled by the faithfulness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Gentle in the way we interact. Self-control instead of being mastered by anything else but the master who came to live and die to restore us. Brothers and sisters, As we come before the Lord, I'm humbled. I think all these fruit of the Spirit that you would see in Galatians 5, 23, God has a lot of work to do. But I know that there was a time when I was a weed, and by God's grace and grace alone, as our brother David pointed out in his testimony, it's not about us. It is surely and purely out of God's grace and generosity that when we are saved, that we are turned to wheat. As we begin this new season, whether going back to school, going back to work, or being faithful at home in whatever ways, brothers and sisters, may we continue to look and gaze and delight in the gospel to mature in it and bear fruit for his glory. Join me as we pray. God, throughout history, people, though it was taught in the scriptures about the suffering servant, People of God did not have a real category to expect such a king. And as we see prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah who spoke the truth, 
Yet people of God responded without faith. God, there are some of us here, by God's grace, we are saved fully through the finished work of the cross, nothing of our own. But we're still in that early journey of bearing fruit that reflects your glory. God, may we hunger more for your righteousness to have that kind of influence and power that brings you glory. God, we confess, I confess that sometimes I want to see things faster, bigger, but you reminded us that your ways are not our ways. And I wonder how many things I have missed because I'm not looking in the things that you are looking for. But God, there are also some of us who are like weed. We are here. We are singing songs. We are listening. But God, our hearts have not been transformed. As prophets have spoken in the past, we do not have ears to hear. We understand maybe intellectually, but our hearts have not been engaged and we're not trusting you and following you. Oh God, we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you be the one bringing conviction, causing us to repentance and turning back to you. God, the last thing we want to do or think or even expect this at the end time, stand before you and you tell us, I don't know you. God, we don't want to be bundled up and thrown in fire where we'll be gnashing of teeth and eternal separation from our Creator who made us in your image to know you, trust you, delight in you, and to glorify you. Lord, we pray for your mercy. And God, just as you've been patient with many of us, and just as you've been patient with apostles like Peter and the disciples who still in Acts 1 didn't get it, and like Apostle Paul who knew the scriptures but didn't quite get it, pray that, Lord, in your time, you would bring many to yourself for your kingdom. Soften all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray.